Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. This episode is all about how to recover and restore trust when there's been some form of relationship abuse in the past. Uh, We first aired this conversation back in 2017 and uh, a number of people wrote in to ask for specific and practical things that they could do uh, with a partner or client who's in the process of recovering. So I've been thinking about that for the last two years and uh, after this conversation uh, with Niati Evers and Anne Hunter, who are both coming at the topic from a counselling perspective, uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing with you six very specific and tangible things that uh, you can do if you find yourself with a client or partner uh, that seems to be showing some signs of uh, abuse or trauma. So let's get into it. And so to today's question, how do you learn to trust partners again after abuse? So interesting question. I think we'll, uh, uh, we might uh, start with your response, Anne. Um, but just uh, I noticed that there's a bit of ambiguity in the question in that the person asking this question might be talking about an existing partner who has been abusive that they are looking to stay with, or they could be talking about um, uh, future partners or existing partners following uh, an abusive uh, situation back in the past. So feel free to answer uh, this question in any way that's right for you. Um, yeah, Anne, what are your thoughts on how do you learn to trust partners again after abuse? Yeah, it's such a juicy question. And whether somebody's asking from the point of view of a, an existing partner or um, having had um, abuse in the past. I think my answer would be the same. My experience uh-huh. with this stuff is that is that the thing that I had to learn to do was to trust myself, to learn to listen to um, my own signals, my own internal um, signals of what wasn't working for me, mm. um, and to learn to to value myself. And this was not an easy journey because I came from a conservative Christian background where uh, I was absolutely not in quite discouraged from trusting myself, valuing myself. Effectively, if I was ever in conflict with um, an older male, I was wrong. That was kind of the world I grew up in. So learning to, learning that I could actually genuinely listen to myself and trust myself. Learning the difference between my internal um, sort of knee-jerk ego responses and what was actually a fundamental, no, this is not okay with me. All of those things, they took time. But for me, learning to value my own responses and my own needs and to be able to say, look, I, d- I don't know, you know, um, I, don't, I don't actually – um, care if this doesn't work for you. This is what I need. So it's it's quite interesting. And listening to you talk about it, um, it, it your your answer is very much about yourself. Uh, and it sounds like like I'm, I'm sure it wasn't the only thing that was lost during uh, the uh, experiences you speak of. But your trust of yourself sounds like it was crucial in that. Mm, yes, it really was. I think what I observe of people who um, there are people who manage to stay in relationships where they have felt um, abused, but it takes an extraordinary amount of work on 
the part of everybody involved and a really fundamental commitment to change mm. from the... I dislike the terms perpetrator and victim. I really don't because I think there are a yeah, lot why? of interesting dynamics that go on um, in this. Um, yeah. But w when somebody is feeling that somebody else is doing something to them, there needs to be a recognition of that and a willingness to change that dynamic. But also I found that I needed to change my own contribution to, to the dynamic. Now, let me make something really, really clear because immediately <laughs> yes. everybody yes. wants to go, don't blame the victim. Yes. And I'm yes. with that. I am really with that. Yes. I've seen victim blaming and the damage that that can do. However, yes. I also realized that one of the reasons I went along with this system that was abusive to me was that I wanted something out of it. And the thing that I wanted out of it was for there to be safe people in the world that I could just trust because they were Christian elders or Christian leaders. I wanted mm -hmm. that system because it made life easier for me because I didn't have to think my way all the way through everything. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn to accept responsibility for thinking my way through everything and listening to all of myself. Yeah, so it, it took uh... change on my part as well. Yeah, it, it is difficult. I like that you draw us away from the black and white dichotomy of uh, a perpetrator and a victim because uh, life is so much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. But as you say, um, uh, we have to somehow have that conversation in a way that doesn't wind up being victim blaming. Mm, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I've been the victim of victim blaming. And it's, it's <laughs> really awful when you are in the yeah. space of having, you know, this desperately difficult thing happen to you and being told, oh, you, you failed in this way and, you know, you caused it. You, you, you know, that I would yeah. never, ever, ever want to inflict that on anybody. It's terrible. But also. Yeah, it's a whole. It's the whole second layer of, of horror sitting on top of the Absolutely. horror. And, and, and I'm sure the three of us will easily join together in saying that no one under any circumstances ever deserves to be at the receiving end of uh, abuse, physical abuse, or etc. Or emotional abuse. Yes, thank you. Yep. So did you have more you wanted to say on that, Anne, before we move on to Niati? Um, the that will do for the moment. <laughs> I can talk for hours. <laughs> we can come back. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Niadi, what are your thoughts on how, how does one learn to trust partners again after abuse? Yeah, yeah. Great and really important question. And, and it was so great to hear you because um, having lived through uh, an abusive relationship myself with my ex-husband, which is now like 15 years ago or so, um, my first response was very similar in that the thing that I needed to learn in that experience was to trust myself and to take my own side. Mm. And yeah, and what I really liked in what you said, Anne, is you spoke about some of the the barriers or what we sometimes call edges in process work to, you know, your ability to trust yourself and what, what it took from you to do mm. that. Mm. And what I would like to add to that in, in my own experience and working with others is there is often an investment in what we call like a high dream 
mm. or you know what we would want the relationship to be like, our dream, our hope for the relationship. Mm. And so when I look back to the abusive relationship and what I've seen in others too, there were so many signals early on that could have given me the clue. But I oh, didn't want to see that. Right, right. Can, you want can to you say a little, Yeah, can you say a little more about what sort of early signals one might see that, uh, that a relationship is potentially heading in a not great direction? Yeah, so for instance, um, this person was a therapist and they led a, an ongoing personal growth group. And this was like one of the first evenings we were together. And it was very romantic and we had champagne and somebody phoned mm. from this workshop and they wanted to um, resign, basically. They didn't want to continue. And he went off at this person and using their psychology to make them feel less and make them feel bad about their choice. And this person decided to stay, but I was like, I was gobsmacked. But... Mm. I didn't want to see that. So I justified it in my own head and kind of rationalized it away. But of course, that became the pattern of our, of our relationship. You know? yeah. it, it's funny that the first stage of, uh, I'm not sure if at that stage, Niati, you were falling in love, but even, even just having an enjoyable first date, uh, yeah. people often describe the falling in love process as being an altered state in itself right. in that exactly. you are hit with such a massive wave of uh, of happy chemicals endorphins and so forth that you're actually not in a right mind to make decisions uh, it's it's the most beautiful biological evolved mechanism to get us into partnership with people and ignore all of those early signals because mm -hmm. um, in the cool light of day you look back at that and and say well it was just so obvious right mm. yes exactly but there's one thing I, I wanted to add, and I think this is a really important thing, because the question says, how do I decide to trust again? And I don't think you decide to trust. Trust mm. isn't like a static thing or a product. Trust is very fluid. And trust is an outcome, a natural outcome of having the right conversations, of how we resolve conflict, of, uh, I mean, my current partner, he initiates conversations with me when he feels, you know, he's done something that was hurtful to me. I may not even have noticed that I was, you know, something hurtful happened, but he takes responsibility for it before I've even asked him. So mm -hmm. that's a behavior that gives me enormous trust, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that he's always trustworthy. Neither am I. Because mm. I have blind spots. We all have feelings of revenge in us. We all sometimes want to hurt each other. None of us are always trustworthy. Mm. <sighs> True that. It's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> ride being human. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I also like something you mentioned a little earlier about your example there, Niati, in that it highlighted um, – the, the way people use ranks and powers. So the, the example you spoke of, uh, that person was using their psychological rank uh, against right. someone else. Uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know if this is a, an always statement, but it seems to me always where there's abuse, uh, someone is pulling in a, a rank or a power that they have, whether it's physical power and physical violence or psychological rank to manipulate you psychologically or financial rank to control you financially. There's always a rank or a power that's being misused. Yeah, absolutely. 
And yeah. I think that awareness of the powers we have and how we use them is relevant for every human being on the planet. Oh. Yeah, and Anne, it sounds like in your story there was a bit of uh, institutional rank and power yeah, there as well. Yeah, exactly. And also one of, one of the things that was interesting in um, clergy sexual assault was uh, spiritual abuse. When somebody represents God, um, oh, yeah. it, it has an added layer. And in fact, yes. we had um, back so back in the early in the in the late eighties, early nineties, no, the term clergy sexual assault hadn't been um, formed yet, hadn't been coined yet. And the car, the centres against sexual assault over here, the Casas, they were getting people who were experiencing um, religious institutional violence, and and that had this this element, and they didn't quite know what to do them with them, and they would send them to us because. Um, it, it, they recognized that it was an added layer that they didn't have the skills to, um, to deal with. And we, we formed a resource group for some years, um, supporting women from, you name it, any religion you can think of, we got them. Any, any fact, wow. any, any denomination, wow. any, anything, we got them. Wow. Wow, it's big. It's, yeah. it's, that's phenomenal. And yeah, who wants to go up against God? So if yeah, someone's, exactly. someone's, yeah. That's all the you know. That's the highest rank you can that's get. The ultimate power. <laughs> right? yeah. can possibly equalize yeah. your rank with God. It's a fascinating journey to to learn to do that. I can tell you. It's a big ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. My thoughts on the topic are um, that if if we're talking about an existing partner, then for me, I I, I go to thinking it might not be possible. Uh, like. Once a relationship dynamic and once someone's personality type gets to the point where they're misusing their rank like that, it the often, level of yeah. yeah, the level of change that is required yeah. um, and the the quickness with which that needs to happen just just might be impossible. I mean, we might be talking about a minor trust violation, or we might be talking about large scale abuse. Uh, and if it's the oh, latter so end of that scale. Yeah, yeah there's something I really want to say about this, which is you do not have to put up with any of it. One incident, Absolutely. you know, if you decide, if you experience one incident and you feel like leaving, then leave. That is, yeah. I would really, really, really want to make that point very, very clear. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. Completely agree. And and the whole pattern of thinking, well, it was just the once. It, it shouldn't happen again. There was extraordinary circumstances then. And it was because we were having a fight. So I, I kind of brought it on myself. Yeah. Huh, no, no, there are no mm. circumstances under you which. But also, and also at the other end of the spectrum, I want to say I've absolutely known people who have been in patterns of um, very, very unhealthy levels of violence who have really learned to change it and have really changed it. But it has taken yep. a massive commitment, particularly yep. um, where, where there appears to be a fairly clear dynamic where one person is doing more of the violence and one person is receiving more of the violence. And I know that patterns are complex and I, I want to acknowledge the, that it's not black and white. But I have known people to be able to work through that, but it takes an enormous commitment to change on behalf I, of both. I, I'm also, I admit, um, sort of on the side of hope. I think, I think to continue as a human <laughs> amongst other humans, um, one has to have a fair bit of hope. Um, but, uh, yeah. And I, I guess for me, in terms of if, if that hope is to be realized, um, 
I like what I understand about a restorative justice approach, so I'm not pretending to be trained in that realm, um, but I think uh, from what I understand about it, there's some great mechanisms where it basically says that if it feels like it's of a scale which is worth pursuing within the relationship, then first you need to set up a safe facilitated space and you need um, support people for you, with you in addition to um, the facilitator. Mm. Uh, you need to... Uh, Tell your story and the other person needs to repeat that story back yes. and you get you get veto rights. So if they haven't heard some of the subtleties and the nuances of your story and they haven't really felt it and understood it, then you get to veto the whole process at that point in time. Um, and then once it's all been heard, um, generally the other person sets their reconciliations. And when this is done as an alternative to the uh, uh, to the mainstream justice system, uh, people within a restorative justice approach generally give themselves harder uh, punishments. Is not the right word, but harder harder sentences, harder punishments than the mainstream system does. And it's due to the fact that. They've had to so deeply hear um, the story and the impacts that they've had on someone else. Nice. I like that a lot. What you what you're saying, Rod. I just want to would love to add one thing to what yeah. you. Yeah. So, you know, what I'm really hearing both of your story, which is, which is also my experience, is that often in you know for the one who is on the receiving end of the abuse, there is a background process of. Um, really befriending and getting to know and getting into your own power. Mm. And so I think that's, you know, that's, uh, I mean, I hate to use this word because it's, it's so horrific to live through it, but in a way that's, you know, having lived through it myself, I can say that's what I gained from it. Like I finally managed to stand up to the bully and uh, that was it, you know, that was uh, no bully has ever had that kind of power over me ever again. Yes. So, you know, I, I yeah. don't recommend it. It's a bad approach. But, you know, that is often, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I do. And I think we also have to find a way to say that um, if we just take, say, for the sake of conversation, physical violence – we have to find a way to say it doesn't exist in a void without saying that it's ever acceptable under any circumstances. Mm. Um, and we do need to, particularly if there's a pattern over time, we do need to look at the things within ourselves. I, I know from, yeah, you know, just, just to look at the, uh, abuse I've experienced, they have been exactly as you say, Niadi, they've been a call to my power. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and, it's an interesting ride. And one last thing, just, you know, cause, I think there is a, a real, t you asked the question also, like, what if you've come out of that kind of abuse and now you're with a new partner, right? Who isn't, yeah, who yeah. isn't abusive. And I think one of the things that happens when you come out of an abuse situation is when there are things that seem similar, when my current partner raises his voice, it yeah. triggers a memory mm. for me, right? Yep. Yeah. And early on in the relationship, what I would do is I would just cut him out i would just be like oh you're one of those like fuck you fuck off basically yeah. right and in that moment i became kind of abusive to him mm. because he isn't a violent person but of course he gets you know angry and he's got a temper sometimes but it isn't directed against me mm. and so i had to learn to distinguish between what he's doing and my appropriate reactions to that 
versus my reactions to the past abuse, you know, and that's, that's where this whole thing of, you know, burning your own wood, doing mm, your wow, own work yeah. is really important. Wow, that's no small task. Um, that's, that's amazing. And yay, yay you for being able to see that separation. And that brings in something that um, I have observed a lot when people are involved in a dynamic where both of them have abuse in their pasts. Both of them have emotional triggers and are very sensitive around things. And each of them is feeling abused by the other in different yes. ways. So, for example, um, somebody might have um, a, quite a large personal space bubble and they feel like the other person, when they're you know, getting heated, steps in and they are feeling physically threatened by the fact that this person steps into their personal circle. And what they don't realize is that they, their voice has been elevated and that is triggering the other person who is feeling that they are yelling. And it, you know, that, that's the thing from their yeah. past. That's just a, an example of a kind of a co-dynamic where each person feels like the other is abusing them. Yes. And each person is feeling, is feeling threatened. And that is terribly complex. It is really hard when you feel like, but I'm the victim here. You should be listening to me to then put aside my own pain enough to listen to the other one and to yeah. have a, 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 a process that involves both people taking it in turns to really listen to the other. And I think that process that you set up, that you, you outlined, Rog, I think it is great for everybody to be able to have the ongoing ability to um, do take it in turns to do reflective listening with each other where you just sit and listen and feedback until the other one feels heard. Yes, know, um, yes. And it's hard work. Yes, it is very hard work. I, I, that's just so beautifully said, Anne, and I, I think tying it together with learning about your power and having those conversations uh, at least to begin with in a facilitated space with mm -hmm. a third party present mm -hmm. so that you can learn those skills of de-escalation and learning mm -hmm. about your power. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a couple of other just before we finish, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll check to see if either of you two have got any closing comments as well, but, um, just a couple of quick practical tips, um, on, on going forwards with new partners. Um, one is, uh, yeah, just to remember that your pace is absolutely perfect. Um, particularly mm -hmm. as we start, if we're talking about sex, your pace is absolutely perfect. And I think one of the roles of the, partner, I'm going back to sort of a, a situation where one person has an abuse history and the other doesn't. If you're the person that doesn't so much have a strong abuse history, um, you could kind of describe that as a bit of a privileged position. I mean that in the most loving way. And part of your role is to share that privilege, which is to just be a little bit of a rock and not take things too personally. I mean, don't let the other person start abusing you. But uh, yeah, share that privilege and recognize that you're in a pretty, pretty unique little spot there. Um, and how would you yes. share that privilege, Rog? How to share it? Um, to recognise that in a moment, uh, particularly a moment of sexual exchange where things get a little bit wobbly, even though I'm going to speak in the first person because my sexual abuse uh, history is fairly distant from me these days. So if I'm in a situation with a partner and they're having a bit of a wobble that relates to their more um, more present abuse history, um, even though that's a tricky moment for me, I've just got to remind myself that it's nowhere near as tricky for me as it is for the other person. 
And if I can share a sense of comfort and joy in my body and in the sex exchange and just uh, stay present to that, then that's what that's what the privilege of not being abused is about. It's a, it's a relative comfort in your body and with someone else. So, yeah. So, for me, it's about sharing that. So, Did be that prepared make sense? to process your own emotional stuff without dumping it on your partner in part. Um, yes. And I think also it's probably a little bit easier for a person that has a less present abuse history to be calm and cool and lovingly supportive while they set boundaries. Mm. So just gently, softly being able to say, yeah, no, actually I'm not so much into that at the moment. And and being able to demonstrate that boundaries can be set and can be done fairly easily. Uh, I think mm. that's an important sharing of privilege. Um, and, yeah. it, and I would like to add to that, um, th- th- in terms of sharing the, the privilege, being aware of what um, your partner's triggers might look like, being alert to them and understanding, you know, Yes. Looking for the subtle signals of it because often somebody else can see it before you become aware of it when you're coming out. <laughs> yes. When you, especially when uh, your abuse is relatively recent history. Um, yes. Quite often other people can see manifestations of you getting close to a trigger before you can. Yes. And, and uh, I think also um, f- if it's possible for both parties to sort of look at it as a shared project yes. rather than as something yep. that one person has brought and is there to work on um, yeah. they're lonesome. Yeah, Absolutely. shared project. So I have a final comment about yes. that, right, around the shared projects thing because I really I, – I love that idea and I also know that's not always possible or right, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But um, what I um, – in process work, sometimes we use the term of uh, picking up a homeopathic drop of the other person, right? Mm. So, like, where is, like, a little bit of that energy useful for me? So, as as the one who is experiencing the abuse, right? So, if I think of the bully, right, my, my ex, for example, yeah. if I pick up just 1% of that energy... What it does is it allows me to stand up for myself. So I, you know, it's amplified. The bully is amplified, like his power fills the room, right? And negates everything else. But if we take like the healthy aspect of that, it's the ability to stand for yourself in a very uncompromising way. Yeah, mm. great. So it's like uh, mm. this, this, this dynamic, this energy has turned up in my life. In what way could it possibly potentially be just a little tiny bit useful for me? That's right. Mm. That's right. Wow. In a transformed oh, way. Yes. Yeah. Yes, transformed. Yes, because mm. yes. yes. Wow. Um, wow. That's <laughs> great conversation. A, yeah. yeah. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, th- thank you so much, friends. Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. 
<laughs> this is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would, if I could, frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. And that was Niati Evers and Anne Hunter, uh, both of whom are counsellors working in this field. Uh, you can catch their details in the show notes. Uh, also, just want to say, um, so Niati works from Portland, Oregon, and uh, Anne is in Melbourne. Uh, I think they both do uh, sessions via video. Um, I really recommend this. Um, it can seem a little odd at first, but you quickly realise that uh, doing counselling sessions by video is um, easier, better, in my opinion. So I'd like to share with you now uh, six very specific and practical things that you might want to experiment with. Uh, this comes from my experience as a counsellor, which is where most of my training has been. Um, also from working as a hands-on therapist, so that's uh, sex work, um, but where I'm bringing in a lot of those counselling skills uh, and working on people that are in turn working on their trauma or assault backgrounds. Uh, and this also comes from uh, my experience of teaching about 10,000 people around uh, sexuality and touch and consent in workshops and yeah this stuff comes up all the time we all have um uh, we all have symptoms and signs of abuse and trauma even if we don't so much identify as uh as those titles um, because that's the joy of being in a sex negative culture but yeah, if you do have a partner who is in the process of working on uh, recovering uh, from their experiences, then you might find some of these things useful to experiment with. Uh, before I get started, it might be helpful to think about this from the perspective of what someone has gone through if they've been in particularly a long-term uh, abusive relationship, especially where sexuality is concerned. Uh, essentially, they've been in a spot where for a long time they just haven't had the option of boundaries, or at least boundaries have been very weak. So that, as a consequence, tends to get very normalized. Um, so I feel like the way this often presents as in what you wind up working with in a partner or a client, is someone who is very unfamiliar with the idea of asking for what they want and might find it quite difficult <clears throat> to um, express their boundaries uh, and uh, it, just simply to say no, just because uh, that's a right that has been uh, effectively sort of removed or played down over the course of experience. Um, it, this in turn then often tends to look like uh, something like a disinterest in sex or low libido or things like that. Um, but all these things vary in different people because we're all such fabulously different creatures. But uh, yeah, here are six ideas that you might want to experiment with uh, to work on passivity and trust and so forth. So the first one is uh, a game of what you might call come here, go away. Uh, so the two of you stand on opposite sides of the room and one of you just using hand gestures, so like a come here gesture or a go away gesture or a stop where you are gesture, 
uh, purely plays with the power they have to control the movements of the other person. And, you know, like it's pretty transparent what that's trying to do and it's a pretty basic exercise, um, but it's a great way to get start get started and start to develop trust um, that uh, a person has agency and governance in what happens and has a way to control you. Uh, number two is um, if you're working with someone who is who struggles to articulate how they would like to be touched, uh, then a solution, a way around that is to perhaps offer them three types of touch and then tell them they have to pick uh, which one of those three they would like. Uh, most people are more able to do that. And you can either do that purely verbally. So say, all right, no worries. Um, so would you like a massaging style of touch or would you like scratchy kind of touch or would you like light uh, sort of like fingertips, light touch, uh, or you might just actually literally demonstrate the three of those and just say, radio, you now need to pick which one of those you would like more of. Uh, number three is to learn the difference between what positive and negative feedback looks like in your partner. Uh, and then just make sure you never ignore negative feedback. Uh, I mean, so this is just good general advice for anyone. This is a great skill in all touch-based relationships, in fact, all relationships. So what I mean by positive and negative feedback is, um, on in some levels, it's obvious. Uh, it's the word yes and the word no. But um, the actual words are a very small part of communication. Uh, so negative feedback in a partner might be feedback where, say, they shrink away from the suggestion or the, or the touch, or their breathing goes like either stops or goes uh, quick or rapid. Uh, their body tenses or resists or starts to move away uh, and perhaps there might be uh, a version of eye contact like looking down or looking away or something like that. Um, the exact signal signals vary a little bit um, but they might all be regarded as uh, bad feedback or negative feedback or a variation of the word no. Um, good feedback uh, for the most part tends to look the opposite. So a person that uh, like softens and relaxes and in some way moves their body towards you might all be positive feedback. Uh, someone who breathes in a relaxed and smooth kind of a fashion and who is smiling. Uh, obviously anything like um, moans or sighs or other vocalizations uh, that uh, sound like they're happy, that's all positive feedback. So you'll get to know a little more about this. It's, I, I almost feel like it's like a scientist uh, observing an experiment uh, just to learn how to read um, the person you are with. But yeah, circling back around, if you've got someone that has an abuse history and has difficulty trusting themselves or trusting anyone in uh, physical contact, then learn to know what that negative feedback looks like and just do an exquisite job of never pushing past it and never ignoring it. And if you were doing something that was getting positive feedback and the feedback shifts and becomes negative, then notice it, pause and stop and seeing if there's, seeing if there's something better you could do. Uh, number four 
Um, the suggestion is to totally take the focus off what you might call traditional sex, and I suggest that the two-minute game is a fabulous way to do this. Uh, regular listeners will have heard me talk about the two-minute game quite a bit. Um, it's deceptively simple. Uh, essentially, all it is is that you um, take it in turns. So uh, one person asks or, or names what they would like to happen, uh, and that could be you know something they receive or something they give or whatever. Uh, and if the other person is in agreement with that idea, then you set a timer running, and that's what happens for two minutes. Uh, and then the, the buzzer goes off, and you swap, and you swap, and you swap. Um, one of the joys of the two-minute game, I mean, you can play it any way you want, and you can play it deliberately for sex and sexual outcomes, and if you do, then it's a fabulous way to do foreplay and to make sure that you're sort of staying in lockstep with each other. Um, but a great way to do it, uh, particularly in a sort of a therapeutic, or you might say healing, if that's language that you relate to, kind of a way, is to totally take the focus away from sex. Uh, so some of my favorite things over the years um, that either I've been asked for or that I've asked someone else for is just stuff like give me a foot massage for two minutes or cradle my head in your lap and uh, tell me why I'm not a bad person for two minutes uh, or uh, make me a cup of tea the, the way I like it for two minutes or just touch and tickle my back uh, while I'm still wearing my t-shirt just lightly and softly. Uh, so basically anything at all I encourage you to get creative and it's a great way to help a person to get engaged and proactive with uh, asking for what they want. Uh, step number five is in some ways, or suggestion number five, is in some ways an extension of the two-minute game. Uh, there's an activity called active receiving, and I want to give credit here to uh, Deej and Uma at the Sexological Bodywork Institute uh, in Australia. Uh, that's where I uh, first learnt this from, and I know that they in turn credit this to other people, but never mind, they deserve some credit. So the idea of active receiving is rather than passive receiving, which is where you just lie there and allow whatever happens to happen, active receiving is where you are constantly directing uh, what happens. So the second person in this case, um, it's great to do this on a massage table if you can, but just on a bed or on the floor works fine. Um, the second person is next to you and unless you give them instructions they don't do anything they're basically a fancy automaton kind of robot that's there to touch and potentially please you if that's what you ask for but only in the ways you describe and they can't do anything if you don't tell them anything so you might say you know massage my shoulders massage my legs tickle my feet, uh, slap my chest, uh, and the process just continues and you stay with each act activity for um, um, as long as is right. And it's quite liberating in that you get to have exactly the experience you want and it's also quite liberating for the person playing the other role because they don't have to do so much guesswork. It's a lot easier on them. Um, this can be difficult and confronting for people who are not familiar with asking for what they want uh, or for people 
who have had that trained out of them. Um, so my suggestion is start with just like, you know, 15 minutes. And uh, it might be an exchange you want to do for both parties, but it doesn't have to be. From there, build up to doing it for half an hour. And if you're specifically working on sexuality, then my suggestion is to make sure that you include at least 10 minutes of that 30 minutes to include some form of touch on genitals. And that can be anything from just the, the, the placement of still hands through to whatever else you might be in the mood for. Um... And then from there, you might find yourself working all the way up to an hour or even an hour and a half. And I just have to say that's such a delicious, delicious exchange. That is my idea of superb sex. Um, yeah, and it's also great training for someone who isn't so good at asking for what they want for whatever reason. And then my sixth suggestion is just to really encourage boundaries uh, in the person you're working with, uh, by which I mean simply on those occasions where they do actually call a boundary, uh, like say, no, I'm not into that anymore, or please stop that, or could you do it more like this, or anything that looks like a boundary or a direction, just always say thank you. If you can avoid taking it personally, uh, it makes it much easier for that person to uh, call their boundaries in the future, and gradually over time, you will develop much more of a sense of trust. And when you've got trust in place, everything else takes care of itself. Like, it's not hard to get into all the complicated, detailed, nuanced uh, expressions of sexuality. Uh, that stuff just sort of un unfolds itself most of the time really well. So long as you've got trust and communication in place, and that's what we all need to feel relaxed and when we're relaxed then our sexuality and our arousal can come out so these are certainly not guarantees and that's not a total plan that'll work on all people all the time hopefully you'll find some of that stuff useful some of the time um yeah have fun with that folks and thank you for being willing to uh, look into this stuff and see if you can be an assistant or of assistance uh, to the partner or the client that you're working with. And I'd like to tell you a little about a few upcoming workshops. Uh, this is only relevant to people in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, so first workshop is Playing With Your Power, which is on uh, Saturday, October the 26th. Uh, this is purely self-development or psychology, you might say. It's all about working out what power or what, what privileges and what ranks you have in the world and what ones you don't have. Uh, it's about working out how you can share and develop a stronger relationship with the ones you do have and how you can access, uh, you might say, the ones you don't have. Um, it's a very nuanced approach to the topic. Uh, I think the idea of uh, privilege and power and rank are crucially important ones. Um, we tend to focus on just a couple of the powers and privileges uh, when we're talking about this stuff and I think when we talk about a whole range of privileges including communication skills, emotional fluidity, access to family and community um, and a whole bunch of other layers of the conversation then um, a much 
fuller picture uh, starts to emerge. So yeah, that's on Saturday, October the 26th. On uh, Sunday, November the 3rd, we are running Opening Up to Opening Up, which is a relatively new workshop for us on um, a whole range of non-monogamies. It's not a workshop that um, brings with it the idea that there's any one particular model of non-monogamy or polyamory that's right for everyone. Uh, there's just not. Even with monogamy, there's, there's no one particular model uh, that works for all monogamous people. Um, so this is a workshop very much around working out what of those structures are right for you and what the agreements would look like that would support that. And we also dig dive into communication and jealousy because they're such crucial elements of, well, any relationship really. So that's Sunday, November the 3rd. And lastly, uh, Curious Creatures is bringing out from Singapore Dr. Martha Lee in uh, mid-November. Uh, Martha's going to be running five workshops, uh, which are all quite specific and hands-on. So the art of fellatio, the art of pleasuring pussies, the art of pleasuring penises, and so forth. Uh, all of those workshops are on our website, which is curiouscreatures.biz. B-I-Z. Thanks for listening, folks.